As we scan through the names of so many politicians, artists, activists, writers, musicians, bankers, merchants, and laborers, just to name a few, that make up the tapestry of New York's history over nearly 400 years, there are, of course, the names that we know, many of whom still live with us on a daily basis in the street names and statues around the city. But I'm always most fascinated, perhaps, by the names we don't know, those who were more ordinary people living more ordinary lives that perhaps are forgotten to history. When we look at them through what is left in public documents and records, we see that they weren't so ordinary at all. And today's show, a truly special one, highlights one of them who, in the end, represented so much of what went on as the city transformed itself from the old into something altogether new. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks we take a look into the people and places of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras to truly see what lay beneath the glitter and the gold. This week, we take a look at a unique and long-forgotten story, but one which gives us rare insight into the social and economic shifts that, in fact, created and then propelled the Great Gilded Age. The old New York townhouse has been called the miracle on 4th Street, and in so many ways, it is. If you find yourself wandering in the no-ho neighborhood of New York's Manhattan, strolling just south of Astor Place along Lafayette Street, and you decide to turn left on East 4th Street, you'll find it. About halfway along the street, sitting in stately silence on the north side of the street, is a lone row house. It's easy to notice as it stands all by itself without the once nearly identical houses flanking it on either side and once with others stretching along both sides of the street. Despite its solitary appearance, it has the understated elegance of a world long since gone. An elegant brick facade, a door surround and steps carved from local marble, a pitched roof accented by dormer windows, and perhaps most striking of all, the intricately carved federal-style fanlight above the door, along with the Greek Revival pillars supporting it on either side. In the architectural details around the very door alone, this tall, narrow, six-story house marks a transition from the old into the new. The house, one of the very last of its kind to be found anywhere on the streets of New York, and indeed the most intact and very best preserved to this day of them all, is known as the Merchant's House Museum. It's unquestionably one of the city's most important and most beautiful historic house museums, now telling the tale of life in old New York. Back in the 1960s, it was in fact the very first property protected by New York's overdue landmark laws, and now both its exterior and beautifully appointed interior are protected by landmark laws. Built in 1832, the house was home throughout much of the 19th century to the wealthy Treadwell family. The merchant, Seabury Treadwell, 
his wife Eliza, and their eight children, including six daughters, the last of whom died unmarried in the house in 1933. Long before the Great Gilded Age came to be, it was the merchant class, of which Seabury Treadwell was a notable part, that laid the foundations and established the fortunes of old New York's pre-Civil War elite. The house remains to this day, in many ways, just as the Treadwell family knew it nearly 200 years ago, with much of their original furniture— Household and decorative objects from lamps to paintings to china still in their places in the house today, as if the family had just left for church, and we were allowed to not only have a peek into their house, but also to have a rare look back into the world of an old antebellum New York which disappeared so many years ago. The house has been called a miracle in the sense that its actual structural foundations, along with its delicate original plasterwork and burnished gas chandeliers in the parlors, not only miraculously survive, but rather persevere to this day, determined to show us a long-gone but deeply significant way of life, despite the challenges and threats of a modern city encroaching upon it. The Merchant's House Museum is often said to contain many secrets, and it's been called, and it's felt by many, to be Manhattan's most haunted house. And there are regular reports of unexplained sightings and sounds that perhaps indicate that Seabury Treadwell and his family and even their hardworking Irish servants may still, in some ways, continue to wander about their beloved home even to this day. But buried in the Treadwell family tree is perhaps another secret that the gilded gentleman finds striking and deeply fascinating. A long-forgotten member of the family, the husband of Seabury's eldest daughter, Elizabeth, was once a true gilded gentleman, you could say. His name was Effingham Nichols, and he rose from blue-blood Knickerbocker beginnings in this world of old New York. He followed the route of many young, ambitious men navigating the changing economic structure of New York and made the transition into the city's wealthiest elite to prosper among the Goulds, the Vanderbilts, and the Astors in the great Gilded Age that ended the century. While many of the great Gilded Age fortunes were made by newcomers and outsiders, those not of the old New York blue blood, but What is perhaps most fascinating about Effingham Nichols and his story is that he, through a very strategic decision and taking advantage of a very opportune moment, was able to pass from the old world and thrive spectacularly in the new. While Effingham Nichols perhaps himself has not left us with the rich biographical legacy of some of the most famous names, either of New York City history or of the Gilded Age, he was unquestionably present among them. We are left to interpret his life from city records and official documents, and yet, in taking a look at what he did and where he was, we are given a unique and still personal look at not just one man, but the lives of many New Yorkers who were just at the absolutely right place at the absolutely right time. I'm so glad that today, in our discussion of the world of Effingham Nichols, I am welcoming Anne Haddad to the show. Annie is a good friend and colleague. 
Anne Haddad is the house historian of the Merchant's House Museum. She holds a Master's of Library Science and has worked as the curator of special collections at the New York Academy of Medicine Library. She has long been an advocate of preservation of old books and houses. Annie, I am so happy to have you sitting with me and welcome to the Gilded Gentlemen. Thank you so much. I'm so delighted to be here, Carl. Anytime we get to chat about history is a lot of fun. So I'm so glad you're here. So before we dive into this really interesting tale of this particular gentleman, so much of it begins in the world of old New York. And we hear people talking about old New York. We certainly saw it in the HBO Gilded Age series. So can you, for our listeners, just talk a little bit about what old New York actually was? Well, I think it's really important to realize that old New York began essentially after 1825 when the Erie Canal opened. Because when that happened... New York City was actually transformed from a relatively sleepy uh, seaport in, in a few short years to one of the greatest centers of finance, of trade, of commerce in the world. And the city was positively throbbing almost. You could almost see the city throbbing with opportunity. So as a result, we have all of these descendants of the original English and Dutch Settlers, all these young, ambitious, industrious men becoming merchants, something that they learned by clerking for someone who was older than they, who had been in the business for some years, and they became merchants. And they really took advantage by aggressively pursuing this trade with this influx of goods that were at amazingly low prices coming from Europe. And they sold them, they turned them around and sold them and made an extraordinary profit. And they became vastly, vastly wealthy. And they became known as the merchant princes. And they were known for their breeding, for their their morality, for their gentility. And they essentially dictated the style of how we should behave, how we should live, how we should decorate our homes, how we should dress. And they were the new elites, and they wanted to keep it that way. They wanted to keep their set very exclusive. So this was a world when America certainly was not manufacturing anything by ourselves. So in order to get things to sell, we had to import Import them. them. And that was really the bedrock of this merchant world. And of course, as you said, after the Erie Canal was established, that allowed these, these goods to be transported to other parts of the country. So no wonder they were making so So much much money. So in our chat today, We're actually going to look at some of the trends and the shifts uh, in the social culture during the 19th century, beginning in this world of old New York that you had just talked about, but leading up into the Gilded Age. And we're really incredibly lucky here because we actually have a member of the Treadwell family who was typical of some of the movements at the time. And we can sort of use his life as an example. And that's what we're going to do today. So, So, Annie, why do you think... Seabury Treadwell's son-in-law, Effingham Nichols. It's quite an impressive name. Why do you think he was such a good example of that? And as you and I have been doing for quite a while, why do you think we can call him a gilded gentleman? Well, 
To me, Carl, Effingham Nichols' life really illustrates the trajectory and the transition from the antebellum era, the era before the Civil War, the era of old money, to the Gilded Age. I like to say that Effingham was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He struck gold in midlife when he made this, when he switched the focus of his career, and he ultimately lived the life of a true Gilded Gentleman. He moved in the highest social circles, and by virtue of his old and new money, which we're going to talk about, and his positions in law, he was influential in the real estate development and in finance, he was a very influential figure in New York. If I may paraphrase, Carly Simon? Of course. (laughs) Effingham was where he should be all the time. Oh, I love that. Well, and it's so interesting because we know so much of this world of 19th century New York where you had the old money and then the invaders, as Edith Wharton so often called them, the lords of Pittsburgh, who had made money (laughs) elsewhere and they came to New York and that was the new money. What I think is so interesting and particular to this story is that he really had both of those things. He started in the world of old New York, made some very astute decisions about what he wanted to do in his career, which we'll talk about. And then that just propelled him right into the Gilded Age. So it's really kind of a unique story. So I always love when we're talking about families and and people, if we can ever talk about a wedding. I love to do that. So I think that we should sort of start this story with the wedding of Effingham Nichols to the eldest Treadwell daughter, Elizabeth. Now, that wedding took place when, uh, Annie? 1845. Okay, so very much the world of old New York, but it took place in really an extraordinary place. It took place exactly where you and I are sitting right now. Annie and I are sitting in the parlor, the actual parlor of the Merchant's House Museum, which extraordinarily looks the same as it did in the mid-19th century. So instead of moving north, as so many of the wealthy did, and certainly Effingham and his wife did, and we will talk about that, the Treadwell family stayed right here. And instead of moving, they chose to redecorate their, their home. So where we are right now is this elegant, gracious parlor. And we're seeing it as the family would actually have seen it. There are stunning drapes of a deep, gorgeous red damask on the windows. There's an ornate black Italian marble fireplace just behind Annie. Of course, the Rococo revival furniture is is surrounding this, and the carpet, which I've I've always loved, is a reproduction, but it reflects designs from the ancient world. So all of this put together, it just feels like the middle of the 19th century. Annie, don't you feel like we're really sitting in the world of old New York when of, we're sitting here? Of old New York to the hilt, uh, because everything about these two rooms represents extreme wealth extreme sophistication and taste and really dictates to you, I think, the way that you are supposed to behave when you're in such a place as this. Really? And it's, it was a code of behavior that was set by this old New York society, even from oh, the original plaster around us to the, the gasoliers that are here. But when you walk into a room like this, you sort of know how you're supposed to behave. Right? Certainly. So Annie, let's talk about that wedding a little bit. The wedding of Elizabeth Treadwell and Effingham Nichols was 
We assume based on a romantic relationship, but in this world of old New York, before the Gilded Age, well, actually, and it continued on into the Gilded Age, the union was really of two important families, right? So can you talk a little bit about how these unions worked? Oh, uh, well, yes, indeed. It was a very, very tight uh, society, if you will, especially in this neighborhood, which had physical boundaries, but cultural boundaries as well. There were extremely high standards to be maintained, and everyone essentially knew everyone else. It was a very small world. So men and women usually married within that, that the, this exclusive circle, whether it be within their families, uh, within their church, or their business. I, I've read many diaries in which men talk about marrying the daughter or their, the sister of their business partner. And that's how these matches came to be. And then, uh, of course, we don't know exactly how a uh, 24-year-old Effingham met 24-year-old Elizabeth, but we knew, we do know that they knew each other for several years before the wedding. And it was really a royal event because it united two established New York families who occupied very prominent positions among the elite of New York society. And I think that's so fascinating because that's such a difference to what we get on later in the Gilded Age, because at this early world of old New York, you knew these families. You were probably related to them by some triple cousin Absolutely. once removed, whoever it was, or in this particular case, the son of your business partner. When we get later on into the Gilded Age, you have all these parvenus, all these people coming to you. You didn't know who they were, and they had to be vetted. And that's why so much of that social code, the dinner parties and the, the patriarchs, balls, all of these things, that was really a vetting process to make sure that they really had acceptable standards. So Annie, tell us a little bit about what this wedding would have been like, because we are sitting exactly where that wedding would have taken place in the Treadwell's oh, parlor. What I, would that day have been like? What did she look like? I would give anything to be a fly <laughs> on the wall uh, during this wedding. Well, first of all, we have to backtrack a little bit because the poor servants, you know, the Treadwells had four servants and they would have been busy for, well, as soon as the wedding date was set, the servants would have been working night and day to make this house shine and be absolutely as clean as clean could be. Families would often buy additional furniture. They would rent additional lighting for the event. And you have to picture these both of these parlors festooned with fragrant white flowers. Every surface would have been covered with some sort of greenery. And Elizabeth would be dressed upstairs with the help of her sisters. She probably wore a white dress and orange blossoms in her hair. And orange blossoms conveyed innocence and fertility, which, as we know in this era, were two of the most desirable qualities a female could possess. Oh, absolutely um, right. <laughs> and they would come down, Effingham and Elizabeth would come down the stairs and come into the front parlor, and they were married in a very simple ceremony by Effingham's father, Reverend Samuel Nichols. 
Now, can we talk a little bit about why Effingham Nichols, given the family that he came from, given what his position was, because he was, in that sense, many like many of these young men in old New York. Why was he such a catch for the Treadwell's daughter, Elizabeth Treadwell? Why do you think this would have been a particularly advantageous meeting of families and a match for her? Well, I don't think Seabury could have asked for a better, more advantageous match for Elizabeth. Effingham, he was like the creme de la creme of the society. He came from two prominent and influential Knickerbocker families, the Nichols and the Warners. And he was classically educated at the Elite Bedford Academy, which is where he was born in Westchester. He attended Yale. And he became an established lawyer in New York City with the practice downtown. Almost immediately, he was successful. You know, I think it's really interesting because we are downtown now. We are on East 4th Street. We are below Union Square, which is what the world of old New York was, certainly in this uh, pre-Civil War period. The great Carolyn Astor, who went on to become the Mrs. Astor, even though she was born further downtown, she actually grew up just a couple streets away. She grew up during this same period on Bond Street, and she was from the Skirmerhorn family. So again, another wealthy merchant family of Dutch origins. So when she married into the Astor fortune, I think that marriage, there was probably little love in that one, but it was a pretty much a business <laughs> deal between the Skirmerhorns and the Astors. I think it's in some ways not so not so dissimilar, really fascinating. So old New York, and of course in the Gilded Age, this was really about making money and how making money changed and the different ways that you did that. So can you talk a little bit about, because I think this is important, the difference between how Seabury, as an original uh, member of that old merchant prince world, how he would have made money versus the way as Effingham is becoming one of these bright new gentlemen, how would Effingham have made his money? Because they're a little different, I think. They are. Seabury came to New York. He came from a farm family out in Long Island, and he essentially came to New York and learned his trade. He learned how to become a merchant uh, by clerking, as I said earlier, and he established his business, and that is what he did. That was what he was known for, being a merchant. Effingham, on the other hand, had a, he was a trained professional attorney. He had a profession. But the difference between Effingham and Seabury is how Effingham made the money was by speculating and investing. Uh, he took great risks with both the old money that he had inherited and the new money that he earned. And that coupled with his knack of being in the right place at the right time, I think set him up for extraordinary financial success. Yeah, I think it's so interesting because his world really was changing. Now, also, we always say in New York that real estate's about location, 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 right? So after Effingham and Elizabeth Mary, they move right back in here. And it's a trend that's happening today with children that are married moving back with their parents. Uh, but that's very much what Effingham and uh, Elizabeth did. And they were here for a number of years. But then by the 1860s, it was time for them to move. People were now leaving this once elegant Bond Street area, as it used to be called. And indeed, Effingham picked up Elizabeth 
And they moved because I think that illustrates so much of what was going on at the time. Can you talk about what that move meant, where they went, and, and what we know about that? Well, by the late 1840s, I would say this neighborhood, this wonderfully elite Bond Street neighborhood that had been so appealing to all of the wealthy merchants had begun to go downhill. And the reason for that was that the commercial enterprises simply followed their wealthy clients north. And so they, they moved here. Bond Street, which had once been one of the most beautiful blocks, became a block full of dentist's offices. And the wealthy continued to go northward, which was really the only direction they could go. They went to Gramercy Park, they went to Murray Hill, they went to Madison Square and Fifth Avenue. Now, Effingham, by the time his daughter Lily was born in 1854, they, he had been living with the family all those years, for nine years. So he must have felt that it was time to go because he, just five days after Lily was born, he was placing ads in newspapers looking for a home north of 4th Street. But he must have not found anything suitable, so he remained here on 4th Street with his wife's family for another five years, and then he moved to Brooklyn for one year, I suspect because he had relatives there. That is so interesting to me. One thing to, to, uh, that I want my listeners to be aware of is when we're talking about New York of this period, we are talking about Manhattan, the long, skinny island, because you might think, oh, well, let's just move to Queens or Wilba. Well, that wasn't part of New York at that time. They were different communities. And Brooklyn was, of course, a completely separate city. So the fact that Effingham moved out to Brooklyn, what is that mean? Who was living in Brooklyn at that point? And what can we know about New Yorkers that were moving there? Well, Brooklyn, by that point, was the third largest city in America. And it was very soon to become America's major industrial center because it was ideally situated on the East River, making it ideal for trade and transportation of goods, of manufactured goods. Also remember the regular uh, ferry service had been going on as far back as 1814. So that made it easy for these fairly affluent families and workers to commute. They were essentially the first commuters who would go back and forth to their jobs in the city. And as a result of that, building in Brooklyn positively skyrocketed during those years. And it was really, you and I were talking about this the other day, it was really a middle class that was now growing out in Brooklyn. Am I correct about that? You are absolutely correct. But then, Annie, again, these moves illustrate so much because other young men, other families like Effingham were doing exactly the same thing as they start to accumulate money. And of course, you know, as we often say, if you know nothing about the history of New York, just follow the rich up the island over 400 years and you'll you'll sort of see what happens here. And that's what happened in this particular case, because the next move was really fascinating to me, because now we're sort of getting into the fringes of the Gilded Age. We're still a little bit before that. But Effingham and, and Elizabeth move up to Fifth Avenue. Fifth Avenue is growing. The mansions are are growing. And he lands at Fifth Avenue and 33rd Street, which, and this is the part I love, happens to be directly across the street from Caroline Astor. Her mansion, her brownstone mansion, where she lives with William Backhouse Astor II, is right across the street. So talk about what they saw. 
out their parlor windows. But what did this, talk about this move, what did it mean for them and where they were at this particular time? Well, uh, of course, that move was no accident. I mean, it wasn't that Effingham got there and said, oh, Mrs. Astor happens to live catty corner to me. I mean, this was a deliberate move on Effingham's part because like other wealthy relatively young men, he wanted to move to ultra-exclusive Fifth Avenue because that was where Mrs. Astor had landed, and hence that was where society was going to develop over the next years. Brooklyn, it was for the growing middle class of clerks and, and, and the artisans, and it was a center of industry, but Effingham certainly did not want to live around industry. That was just not for people of his status. But he invested in it. He used it to create further wealth. He speculated there. So many of these wealthy men were actually investing out there, whether it was in real estate or commercially, correct? Correct. Effingham invested and speculated a great deal in the Brooklyn real estate market. In fact, from about 1850 to about 18. 70, 75, that was his greatest period of real estate development. And he built extensively in the neighborhoods that we now know as Clinton Hill and Fort Greene. And Effingham was building row houses made of either brick or brownstone that were priced to be affordable to the growing middle classes. And by the way, Fort Greene in 1850 was advertised as being the most desirable part of Brooklyn. And this shows you how appealing it was to these newly emerging middle-class urban residents who wanted to get away from the congestion and the urban squalor that had come to define New York City at that point. They wanted more space. They wanted fresher air, etc., it's really interesting because nothing really changes, right? If no. you have any money, you're always looking for more space and better air. Now, And, and by the way, Effingham yeah. also owned factories. He didn't just invest in residential real estate. He invested in commercial real estate because some in, and he did this in the area that is now known as Dumbo because he knew that it was well on its way to becoming one of the major manufacturing centers. And that's what I think is so interesting about this, this class of men that were, were moving their way up the, the island and in the investing. It's never about what's going on right now. It's about what it's going to be. And that's what they invested. And that, of course, is what propelled the great Astor fortune in the in the beginning of real estate. But it also seems like Effingham was doing a deal, at least one, with the Astors. What was that story about? You shared that I with mean, me the other day. This was a truly impressive transaction. And this occurred in 1881 between Effingham and William Waldorf Astor. And what happened was Effingham sold property on Pine Street all the way downtown around Broadway and Nassau Street, and he sold it to Astor for $100,000. And that is equal to, are you ready? $2.9 million today. Oh, he did well. He did very <laughs> well. And that was inherited property from the Warner family. What's really impressive is that the value of Effingham's personal real estate by 1886 based on purchases he had made over the past 20 years, amounted to about $416,000, which is equal to $12.5 million today. 
Well, he was doing just fine, right? He and did. I think he earned his slot on Fifth Avenue he right now. He certainly did. The Astros had a few more pennies than that, but still, he could he could hold his own. And so, with that, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, Annie and I will pick up the story. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and I'm with Anne Haddad, the house historian of the Merchant's House Museum, and we're talking about the life of Effingham Nichols, one could say, a real Gilded Gentleman. So now we're really kind of getting into the years of the Gilded Age here. We're certainly in the early, we bypassed the 1870s, actually. The 1870s was when Edith Wharton set her masterpiece novel, The Age of Innocence. And in the character of Newland Archer, one of the things that we find him often doing is spending time at his club or retreating to his club. This was a very unequal world in so many ways. Women had to stay home, but men could run off to their clubs. But the reason I bring it up is the role of clubs and which clubs men affiliated themselves with was enormously important. And we find that very true of Effingham Nichols, too. And we know a little bit about... So can you talk about Effingham as a club man and what that meant? Sure. There were so many clubs to choose from by the 1870s. I think there were over 100 private men's clubs. Effingham was a member of several, but I think the one that truly had his heart was the Union League Club. Club life was so important to men of the Gilded Age because they longed to be out of the house, which was the domain of their wives, Women controlled that domestic sphere, right? Men needed a place of their own where they could form friendships based on common interests, on common politics, on common uh, cultural values. And they wanted to be in a relaxed atmosphere where they can just hobnob with other men of their, of their class. So these clubs provided this, it was almost like a, really a home away from home. It looked just like home in a sense. It was very grand, very beautifully decorated, filled with valuable works of art. Now, the important thing, I, the distinction I want to make is that the Union League Club is not the same as the Union Club, two very different organizations. The Union League Club was actually an offshoot of the Union Club that was, and it was formed after the Civil War. Frederick Law Olmsted was one of its founders, and it was formed sort of as a political reaction to the war. These men were determined to save the Union, and they professed their loyalty to the United States government via that club. Yeah, so where you belonged as a club, that said a lot about what your political views were, what your social views were, right? It really said a lot about you. And I do know, in various cases, people sometimes got tossed out of their clubs because they weren't, uh, they didn't hold the same views as some of the others. Now, all this speculating and all this money making, I think it would have been exhausting, Annie, don't you, right? Oh, absolutely. So you have to go somewhere to recharge, you have to go somewhere to uh, take a vacation, such as it were. And, And certainly by the time we get into the the Gilded Age, people tend to think of Newport, of course, but actually, Newport came along a little bit later. 
And there were some other places that we see people like Effingham going. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it may surprise some people. In the early 19th century, the place to go actually was the Adirondacks and those wonderful spa towns that were renowned for their mineral waters, known for their healing properties. It came to be called this, there was this craze called the water cure movement. And there were towns like Saratoga and Boston Springs, which sprang up in the 19th century to cater to the wealthy who were seeking to benefit from the curative powers of these waters, but they didn't want to do it in a going out to camp in the wilderness way. They wanted to do it with all of the comforts of home amidst splendid scenery. And then there were towns like Shroon Lake, which Shroon Lake was about 60 miles west of Saratoga Springs, that were renowned simply for their natural beauty, where guests could engage in all of the outdoor activities like boating and fishing and swimming and hiking. And that is where Effingham and Elizabeth and their daughter Lily frequently vacationed. I think this is so interesting because when we look at what was going on in Europe at this time, this was the huge rise of the spa culture, particularly in Germany, Baden-Baden and other of these spas. And that was the the thing to do is go and take the cure, but at the same time, you know, a little see and be seen at the same time, right? I think it's so interesting when I look at uh, one of Edith Wharton's novels, The Custom of the Country, because there we have the character of Ralph Marvell, who very much came from the world of old New York, was very similar in so many ways to, to Effingham. And And he takes his family to the Adirondacks. And when I was reading that, I thought, well, that's so strange because we're not talking about Saratoga and we're not talking about Newport. But absolutely, everything that you've just shared confirms that would have been a very normal place for them to be. So one of the truly greatest endeavors of this post-war, Civil War, Gilded Age, of course, was the development of the railroads, part of the infrastructure of the, the country. And here was, of course, another place to invest and speculate. And it was in this world of the railroads that we really see some of the most famous names of the Gilded Age. So it was a place to really, I always think, not just make money. This is where you could make a fortune, right? So Annie, it seems, and I love this little bit of the story because I think this is really fascinating. It seems that Effingham actually shifted his career and his focus that really propelled him right into the center of the Gilded Age having to do with the railroads. Can you talk a little bit about that? Let us know. What do you do? Well, uh, (laughs) 1865 was the pivotal year for Effingham, because that was the year that he changed his career path. He went from personal law to corporate railroad counsel. Big, big switch. A move that would send his personal worth positively skyrocketing. In 1865, Effingham and several other investors financed a railroad. It was called the Central Branch of the Union Pacific. It was in Kansas, of all places, uh, which was one of the transcontinent, part of the transcontinental railroads. Effingham was chief counsel for the company, and he eventually became a major shareholder and director. And he owned really a huge amount of stock, the equivalent of over $2 million worth today. He's doing really very well now. Now, it also seems that our Effingham had some contact with Jay Gould, who was, of course, one of the big robber barons and one of the great players, of course, along with with Vanderbilt in the railroad stakes. What was that connection all about? Well, 
as you called him, the robber baron, <laughs> uh, Jay Gould, had begun early on to establish a, a monopoly on railroads. That was his goal. And he started out east with the Erie Railroad in New York, and he stole that right from under the nose of Cornelius Vanderbilt and James Fisk. And how did he do that? He issued tons of fraudulent stock, and he did a lot of bribing of New York legislators. And then he starts looking west, and he spots the Union Pacific Railroad doing very well. And by 1873, he took it over. And the reason it happened in 1873, there was a financial panic that year. Stocks depreciated rapidly, and the railroads actually had been overexpanded by that point. So Gould took it over, and Effingham got out, actually, by 1880. And Effingham said of Mr. Gould that I regard him as one of the most extraordinary men I have ever met. He didn't say if he was good or bad. He just called him extraordinary. Well, I think that's probably fair to say, but we we certainly can surmise that they crossed paths and had some dealings. And I think that is just so funny. Effingham just did brush right up against the world of, of all this railroad wheelie and dealing, particularly with Gould. Now, Elizabeth, his wife, she actually died. She passed away in, in 1880, but they're still living on Fifth Avenue. The Astors are still the neighbors across the street. But then he married again. And he married a much younger woman. And then that precipitated yet another move, which, again, illustrates how the wealthy were moving, because, of course, at this point, he's very wealthy. And now we're up on Fifth Avenue. We're up in Fifth Avenue in the 50s, the low 50s. And he is pretty much across the street from... And my listeners will, I refer you to my show on Alva Vanderbilt. He's living pretty much across the street from Alva Vanderbilt and Willie Kay. And they had built, of course, their their famous faux French petit chateau on Fifth Avenue at 52nd. Well, now, once again, we've got Effingham across the street from the Vanderbilts now. So can you talk a little bit about this particular moment and what was going on with him at this point? So Effingham had married Carrie Robbins in 1881, a year after Elizabeth passed away. Carrie was from a very acceptable old money family. And by 1882, they made the move further up Fifth Avenue to 50th Street. And they were simply doing what all the other wealthy were doing. They were migrating north because they were no longer content to live in these narrow brownstone row houses. They wanted larger homes, really palaces, with more space. And they wanted to live as close as possible to the Central Park. I love the fact you call it the Central Park. Will you explain why? Because there's a very specific reason. That is how it was referred, the Central Park. That is how streets and areas were referred, the Broadway, the Central Park. And it's fascinating because when you do read The Age of Innocence, that's how she refers to, that's how she, being Edith Wharton, refers to the Central Park. It's it's very interesting. It's sort of a wonderful 19th century anachronism. I think that's a really interesting point when we look at these families as they're moving north. It's it's not just because there was nowhere else to go up the skinny island of Manhattan, but they wanted bigger space to build these enormous houses. Now it was all about, with the brownstones, it was everyone looked exactly the way the others uh, looked. Here, it's no, mine is bigger, mine is better. 
And it was a very ostentatious show of wealth, which I think is a really important difference from the world of old New York, because that in a way was a sense of conformity. All the houses looked alike. People had roughly similar amounts of money, had almost the same things. Again, old New York had very much what we see around us right now. But the Gilded Age was about was about showing off and, of course, getting closer to space and the park. In fact, Caroline Astor, she, too, left her brownstone in the 1890s and had a double townhouse built on Fifth Avenue and 65th Street for her son. John Jacob IV lived in one half. She lived in the other half, but they wanted to be further uptown, too. Now, this really put Carrie and, and Effingham in the world of the Gilded Age front and center. What would they have done? What were some of their activities? What do we know about what they participated in? Well, when you look at Effingham and Carrie's activities, it is just so typical Gilded Age life. After his second marriage to Carrie, Effingham's life truly exemplified that of the Gilded Age gentlemen. They lived in a large, well-furnished home with a staff. They socialized with the group that came to be known as the 400, the elite, truly elite society. And they were public patrons of many charities. And as a result, they were frequently mentioned in the society pages, which is what exactly what Carrie would have wanted. And when you think about the difference between Carrie and the woman of the antebellum era, where your name only was mentioned when you married and when you died, in the Gilded Age, it was important that your name be in the newspapers all the time. So Effingham also worshipped at the fashionable All Souls Episcopal Church on Madison and 66th. He was even a guest on Jay Gould's yacht. I knew they were pals. They were pals. And uh, they frequently attended weddings, society weddings at St. Bart's on Madison and 42nd. And of course, they dined at Sherry's and Delmonico's. They lived well and dressed expensively, as Edith Wharton would say. She would have said that. And another point about Delmonico's and Sherry's, these these famous restaurants, I always say the, the New York restaurant wars really began when Sherry's and Delmonico's landed across from each other on Fifth Avenue and 44th. But these were restaurants, these were really about stage sets. These were really about going to show yourself off and your jewels and your finery, just like the opera, going to the opera was the same, was the same thing. One of the things that we saw so clearly in the um, in the HBO, the Gilded Age series uh, among the women was spending their time with these charities, with these, these benevolent groups. And it sounds like Carrie did the same thing. Oh, she was totally, totally into it. She was a real player in this gay, fashionable life of the wealthy. She gave so many what were called at-homes, which were these little parties. Now, when I say little, I mean upwards of 150 people, not where you're having a few guests for dinner. And she was always assisted in receiving by relatives like her nieces and her good friends. She attended many concerts in the name of charities, and she rubbed elbows with Ward McAllister, Mrs. Astor, Mrs. Mason Jones, the Livingstons, at places like Chickering Hall, which was a famous concert hall at Fifth Avenue and 18th Street, and at the Waldorf, where at one point, the famous Gilded Age actress Lillian Russell actually once performed at a benefit for one of her charities. 
some of the charities that she worked for, or I, I should say financially supported, were the Home for Convalescent Women, the Sunday Kindergarten Association, which her husband actually began, and the Women's Union Missionary Society. Well, I think this all sounds incredibly benevolent. I'm not sure they got their hands all that dirty, but it, but but nonetheless, these charity events where this was a way to sort of work your way up in society too, right? Is to which charities you supported, who you invited to your at homes, who invited you to their at homes. We certainly saw that in the in the TV series. Uh, it sounds like Carrie was right in the middle of that. So Effingham dies in 1899, just on the cusp of turning the century. One of the things that I really have to say at this point is that we really need to credit the staffs of domestic help and servants that have have helped them and so many of the other families uh, along the way. And I've done an entire show on that called Invisible Magicians with, with Esther Crane. So I refer you all to that show for much more on the world of the servants. But when Effingham died, there are a couple of things I want to look at is certainly his will is fascinating and what he gave, but also he involved his servants. He certainly did, which I think really says something about the quality of the man. He left his servant, Margaret McGuire, and he wrote in his will, by reason of her faithful service to my family. He left her $600, which equals $21,000 today. Wow. A lot. I'm sure of that money. was enormous amount enormous, of money to really enormous her. amount of money. He also made bequests to his daughter and his sister, but he left his wife all of his real estate holdings. And it's interesting because among those holdings was a new building on Park Avenue and 75th, and one downtown on Grand Street, which to me indicates that he was still spreading a wide net uh, when it came to investing in real estate. He knew exactly how things were going in the city at that time. And was investing in different areas in of the different city, areas. which I think is really fascinating. So Carrie lived on for another eight years, and she dies in, in 1907. Looking, I think, at her will, we actually learn a lot about her and, once again, how typical she was of so many of the society women at the time. Carrie was a true Gilded Age woman because she left an extraordinary amount of jewelry. I mean, diamonds after diamonds after diamonds and an extraordinary amount of silver to her family members. But also, interestingly, she left bequests to various charities, the, obviously the ones that she truly supported, that totaled $16,000 equivalent today to over $500,000. Wow. I'm sure they were very grateful to, I to get sure that. I am sure they were. So, Annie, you had shared with me, you had found in one of the obituaries of, of Effingham really something that summed him up, and I would love you to share that with my listeners, because I think it's very typical of him as well as some others of his class at the time. I just thought that this perfectly defined the desirable qualities of many gilded gentlemen. The obituary states that Effingham's death, quote, removes a distinguished metropolitan business, professional, and social leader, a well-trained mind, vigorous faculties, broad views, scholarly tastes, a commanding presence, and a highly successful management of large property interests. 
stamped him as a man of weight and made him a power. That's a wonderful description. I think you always had to have a little bit of facility moving real estate around, exactly. if, right, if you were going to play in this game. So even though there's there's little in some ways that's left to us for insight about the specifics of the life of Effingham Nichols, I just think he is such a fascinating example of a gentleman, certainly gilded to the the end, who really so often was at the right place at the right time with the right people. And I find that so fascinating in this in this story. He came from old New York. We talked about that. He began to invest and speculate instead of just staying a quiet downtown lawyer. And he made money in a new way. And he moved uptown, living side by side, of course, with the Astors and the Vanderbilts. He made that important decision to change his life as a lawyer to actually become a lawyer in the railroad stakes. And of course, that had a significant and very positive financial impact in him. And that propelled him into making even more money with a second wife who spent her time doing the charity work and attending so many of the social functions that we think of in the Gilded Age, from the opera to concerts to the various uh, home receptions. And I bet she just rubbed elbows with Mrs. Astor herself, don't you think? Definitely. I think she did. So this has been quite a tale. And I thank you, Annie, so, so much for joining me today to share it all. It has been a complete pleasure as we sit in this extraordinary place where in so many ways it all began. And the bits of the Gilded Age really did begin here in old New York. And it was such fun to be with you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Really a thrill for me as well, Carl. Thank you. So glad you were here. We'll have to find another show. Thank you so much. And to my listeners, when you are next in New York, I encourage you to pay a visit to the Merchant's House Museum, where so much of this story all began. You will see, like nowhere else, the world of old New York, which formed Effingham, his first wife, Elizabeth, and a place that shows us now just what the world of old New York was really like. This is one of those extraordinary places that I like to say, if you just squint a little bit when the light is right, you really can see into the past. Visit the house online at merchantshouse.org for more information. In addition to Annie, I offer a great deal of thanks to the executive director and the staff of the Merchant's House Museum for making this episode possible. And thank you for listening to this episode of The Gilded Gentleman. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media. And I invite you to become a patron of the show by visiting patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support truly helps me to be able to continue to research, write, and produce the show. I'll see you soon. And what's life without a little glint of gold?